midst of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave four radio broadcasts over the BBC, which would later be compiled into a book entitled Mere Christianity. This book inspired my journey to know why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Toward the end of a debate I was watching between two atheists and two Christians, one of the atheists pulls out some antifreeze, pours it in a cup, warns the audience that it will kill them, and then challenges any Christian in the room to prove their faith by drinking the poison. He quotes Mark 16, 18, and Jesus is teaching here, and it's, it says about Christians, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Well, nobody drank it, and when one of the Christian debaters had a chance to respond, he said, this is why textual criticism is so important. And that is what we're going to talk about today, textual criticism. So our outline today, what is textual criticism? And also, what is a textual variant? So these are uh, phrases I will be using a lot today. Also, the big three textual variants of the New Testament that every Christian should know about, plus a bonus textual variant that will be very interesting for you. And then lastly, because of the textual variants, can the New Testament be trusted? So I'll just kind of give some closing remarks on, on how Christians should think about this information. All right, you can always connect with me by email, bearchristianity at gmail.com, or on Instagram at the real bear Martin. Now it's time for a special part of the show called A Bear in the Woods, and here's our question for today. Bear, is it okay for Christians to have Christmas trees or mistletoe since these are related to pagan worship? Now, December is a time when the Roman Empire celebrated winter solstice and worshiped the agricultural god Saturn. So they would perform these fertility rituals underneath the sprigs of mistletoe to try to please Saturn. Uh, nowadays, couples may give each other like a little peck on the lips, but if we were living back in the Roman Empire, those Christmas parties would be awkward. Also, decorating trees has pagan roots as well. Uh, hanging objects from a tree was a way of honoring Saturn and other gods as well. Uh, depending on the culture you were part of. So, you know, yeah, people can always make these arguments that uh, Christianity uh, is you know, based on these pagan symbols and stuff like that. I grew up in a Christian home with mistletoe and stockings and Santa and decorating the tree. Not one time did I think, oh, wow, I wonder why my parents are worshiping Saturn instead of Jesus. You know, when I drive by houses and see Christmas trees in the window, I don't think, oh, they must be pagans. So in our culture, it's not just assumed by everybody that you are worshiping Saturn if you have a tree. So I think it's fine to have a Christmas tree and do all the other Christmas stuff as well. However, if you are displaying a symbol which the majority of our culture recognizes as something other than Christian, then I do not think that should be displayed in the house. For instance, a Christian should not have little Buddha statues all over the house. That is a symbol most people recognize and associate with Buddhism. So if people came over to your house and saw that, they would assume you are a Buddhist. On the contrary, when people come over to your house and see mistletoe or a Christmas tree, they do not automatically assume you are a pagan, totally antagonistic to Christianity. Most importantly, you know, teach your children the true reason your family celebrates Christmas and live it out every day of the year. Now, that's just my opinion, and this has been A Bear in the Woods. Now, what is textual criticism? It is the process of determining the original wording of a text. 
So if, you know, and, and a lot of times this applies to any sort of ancient writings where it was, where there were handwritten copies, the manuscripts we have are handwritten copies. Well, in any two handwritten copies, you're going to have differences. There's, there's going to be little errors in copying and spelling and stuff like that. And so in, with any handwritten copy, you will have differences. And so a textual critic is an expert who is looking at the differences in the manuscripts and trying to determine, okay, what was the original wording and what is either an addition or subtraction or an error, that, those types of things. Now, a textual variant is the, the phrase used to describe any difference in wording between two or more manuscripts. So this includes spelling differences, word order, missing words, added words, you know, lots of different things can be considered a textual variant. Now, Bart Ehrman, who I've mentioned several times on this podcast, he is a bona fide expert historian of the New Testament. And he famously says there are more variants in the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Now, let that sink in a little bit. There are more textual variants in the manuscripts of the New Testament than there are words in the New Testament. And that is true. There are around 400,000 textual variants and there are only about 138,000 words in the New Testament. So you may be thinking, holy cow, what in the world is going on here? But there are several types of variants. So most of them, 99% of these New Testament variants are insignificant. And so there was no spell check you know, back in the day. So you know, for in, in English, I'll just kind of put it in English so it's easier for us to understand. But you know, John can be spelled J-O-H-N or J-O-N, and it really doesn't matter. It, you know, we, we all know that it's John. And so there are lots of spelling differences in these Greek manuscripts, but they don't have any significance in regards to the meaning of what's being written. Now, also the word order can be different. But if you listen to earlier episodes with about Koine Greek, that was the Greek that the New Testament was written in, Greek is an inflected language, meaning that there are like attachments that are on the end of most of the words and that tells us what role that word is playing in the sentence. So in English, word order matters a lot. If I said bear it through the ball, you know, it, it has to be in a in a if I if I said ball through the barret, then that is a strange sentence, but it it just doesn't make sense in English. However, in Greek, you can put the words in essentially any order you want to for that phrase, and the endings of the words tell you what piece of the sentence that is. And so it, it, word order does not matter near as much in Greek. And so word, word order differences, even though it is a difference in manuscripts, it doesn't affect the meaning at all. Also, a lot of times the definite article is used before a word, and sometimes it's not used. And the definite article, or a definite article is like the. And so sometimes in English, again, it would be like the Paul said to the Peter. Well, that doesn't make real, a lot of sense in English. We just said, Paul said to Peter. Well, in Greek, sometimes they include that definite article and sometimes they don't. And there's still a lot of debate on what exactly the grammatical rules are in regards to the definite article in some cases. And so there are a lot of textual variants that just have to do with this definite article. Again, it doesn't change the meaning at all. And that would be the main difference when we're talking about insignificant textual variants it means the meaning is not affected in any way. Now, the other category, big category, would be significant variants. And these do affect the meaning in some way. Now, most of the time, it is very minimal, but there is a slight effect in the meaning. 
Uh, a good example of this is in Mark 1.14, and it says this in the English Standard Version. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, some other manuscripts say Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. So there's the variant right there. Is it the gospel of God or the gospel of the kingdom of God? Again, it, it's different, but not, you know, it's not like earth shattering. The, you know, all of Christianity does not hang in the balance based on which reading you go with. Here's another example, Luke 2.33, and it says this, And his father and his mother marveled at what was being said about him. This is talking about Jesus. Some manuscripts say Joseph and his mother marveled. Now, they changed father to Joseph. And this has theological significance because according to Orthodox Christianity, Joseph was not the true father of Jesus. Jesus was born by the Virgin Mary. Bart Ehrman, in his book, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, he uses examples like this to demonstrate that scribes were making changes to the text based on their own theological biases. And so they're, they're changing things like uh, father and into Joseph and to try to clarify it and make sure that we, we preserve that Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, we, this is not a corruption of the scripture, because if we know what the original said, then who cares what another scribe wrote? We, you know, yeah, so some scribes changed it to Joseph, but we also have manuscripts that say father. And so if we're able to establish the original, it's not like we've lost the true meaning of the New Testament. And a lot more on this is coming up in, later in the episode. Something else I want to mention real quick is a critical edition of the Greek New Testament. So these critical editions, what they do is they have the Greek text, and usually the, the people who, who publish this edition, they decide on what they believe is the uh, original Greek text, but all the significant textual variants are listed in an apparatus that comes with the book. And so they're, they're right there where you can see, okay, this verse has such and such variation, and it tells you which manuscripts those variants are part of. So it's a, a very detailed uh, scholarly type resource. But I just want to let you know that Christians have this available. And, and, and just any scholar of the New Testament, anybody wanting to, to find out what these variations are, it's, it's there and open. And that's the key point. Christianity is open about our sacred text. Christians have worked to publish these critical editions, scouring through all the manuscripts to make sure that we've listed everything. There's, there's nothing that Christians are trying to hide away. And that's important because other religions do try to hide variations in their sacred text. Now, there are three major significant textual variants in the New Testament that every Christian should know about. At the beginning of this episode, I told the story about the atheist quoting a verse at the end of Mark's gospel and Christians being asked to drink poison, okay? And James White's reply was, that's why textual criticism is so important. Mark 16, 9 through 20, that's the last verses in the Gospel of Mark, there have brackets around this section in most modern Bible translations, and, and this note states that these verses are not found in the earliest manuscripts. Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus were written in the 4th century, and they do not contain the last verses in Mark's Gospel, and then also, the earliest writings by church fathers make no mention of these verses, although they mention a lot of verses in Mark's gospel. So there's not really good evidence that these were original. Also, Greek scholars will say that the, the writing style seems to change in these last verses as well. So again, it, it's pretty much the 
consensus among all New Testament scholars that this was an addition later on. Now, also, at the end of last week's episode, I shared a verse that's not found in the earliest manuscripts, and it's about the Trinity. So 1 John 5, 7 says this, and this is the King James Version. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So that's a very plain, straightforward statement that's about the Trinity. But it is not found in the earliest manuscripts. In 1 John 5, 7 for the ESV translation, it says this, For there are three that testify. And then that's it. The, the rest of it is, is not found in the earliest manuscripts. Now, out of hundreds of Greek manuscripts, which include this verse, only eight of them have the longer reading. And all of these manuscripts date, all of these eight manuscripts date to the 10th century or later. So this is, this is much later on. Now, four of the eight have the variant reading written in the margin of the, of the text, not actually within the actual Bible text itself. And so what scholars think, and this happens a lot, you know, as, as the scribes were studying these, these manuscripts, they'll make little notes, and Christians still do this today. I have tons of notes in the, the side margin of my Bible. It just it helps me understand passages. It, I, sometimes I'll write uh, another few verses on the side that, that help, you know, maybe these verses correlate to something else. So this is a common practice. And so it, what likely happened is scribes were making notes of this in the side margin to help themselves understand the passage better. And then eventually a scribe decided to copy it into the actual text. Now, should they have done that? I, I don't think so. I would, I would love it if the scribes would stick to exactly what was written but we have evidence of this happening. So again, it's not like we're missing the true meaning or the true words of the New Testament. We have evidence that this happened. We can identify it and, and move forward. So why is this verse in the King James Version, but not modern translations of the Bible? At the time that the King James Version was written, some of the earliest manuscripts that we have today had not yet been discovered. And so the manuscripts that were used for the King James Version have the longer reading. And these manuscripts are called the Textus Receptus. It's commonly abbreviated TR, and it means the received text. Now, there are some Christian groups today which believe this is the only inspired form of the New Testament that we have. They believe all the other manuscripts, all the other versions are corrupt. And even if those manuscripts were written earlier than the Textus Receptus, they, they, they just say they're corrupt and we shouldn't trust them. And so oftentimes this belief is called TR onlyism. Now, similar to this belief is the view that the King James Version is the only true inspired Word of God, and that is called King James Onlyism. So very, very similar there. Now, I think there are a lot of problems with both the TR Onlyism and King James Onlyism groups. A very good resource on this is a book by James White called The King James Only Controversy. And so it, it talks about uh, some of these beliefs and, and the problems there with it. But also, you just learn a lot about how the Bible came together. A lot of the stuff I've talked about in the last few episodes, uh, textual criticism. So there's just a lot of good information in that. So yes, the King James Version of 1 John 5-7 is a clear passage about the Trinity. In fact, a lot of TR-only and King James-only people will say, you know, these modern translations are taking the Trinity out of the Bible. But the, we're not. The, the Trinity is, is widespread. The, the doctrine of the Trinity can be defended in many different ways throughout the Bible. It is not reliant on this verse. And I did several episodes a while back on the Trinity, and not once did I use this verse to 
to justify my beliefs in the Trinity. And that was on purpose, of course, because I'm aware that this was a later addition to the text. Now, the last of the three major variants every Christian should know about is going to shock some of you. It's found in John 7, 53 through chapter 8, verse 11, and it's one of the most popular stories in the Gospels. It's included in pretty much every movie about Jesus, and it's the story of the woman caught in adultery. The Jewish leaders want to stone her, and they bring her to Jesus. He bends down and writes something in the sand, and then he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And slowly they all walk away, you know, knowing that they're sinners themselves. Now, after saving her life, Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no more. Now, I was not aware that this was a later addition to the text, and it was not found in the earliest manuscripts. I was not aware of that until I got an ESV version for myself, and I was starting to read through that Bible, and I saw the little brackets. And so this is this is the main reason that I started studying this in the first place, because I just wasn't aware that these um, that these three were not part of the original text. So that's how I kind of stumbled upon textual criticism and all of this stuff. Now, this story, the, the woman caught in adultery, it, it floats around in lots of different locations in manuscripts. So it's absent from the oldest manuscripts. But then when it shows up, sometimes it's in a different area of the Gospel of John, and then also it's been found in two other areas in Luke's gospel. So it's just sort of, you know, it's like a story that was floating around out there and that, that authors are trying to piece in. So did this story actually happen? Is this something that actually happened with Jesus and this woman? You know, who knows? Possibly. But we don't have historical evidence that it was part of John's original writings in the gospel of John. Now, did Jesus have compassion for women? Yes. Was Jesus loving? Was Jesus forgiving? Did Jesus stand up to the Jewish leaders? Yes. We do not need this story to establish any truth about Jesus. We, we can establish those facts from lots of other writings in the New Testament. So, yes, it's a great story. You know, I hope it actually happened. But from a historical standpoint, it is very likely not part of John's original writing in his gospel. So that's the big three, the longer ending of Mark, the Trinity in, in 1 John 5, 7, the Trinity verse there, and then the woman caught in adultery in John 8. Now, here's the bonus textual variant. What is the number of the beast? Everyone knows this. It's 666. But actually, our earliest manuscript can, that contains this verse, it's Revelation 13, 18, has the number as 616. Now, imagine how many books and movies would be done away with if 616 was the number. I mean, all those calculations and all those theories just right down the drain. So, <laughs> Now, although some manuscripts do have 616, the majority of scholars hold 666 to be the original. And one of the main reasons for this is Irenaeus, who I've mentioned in previous episodes, uh, he was writing around 180 A.D., so Irenaeus was aware of this variant, and he says that 666 is the correct reading. So take a deep breath, everybody. Just, just calm down. All right, so with all these textual variants, can the New Testament be trusted? If we only had one copy of the New Testament in Greek, how many textual variants would we have? Well, the answer is zero. So the number of textual variants is nothing to be worried about. The only reason we have so many textual variants is because we have so many manuscripts. And again, 99% of them are insignificant. They're spelling changes, word order, scribal errors, 
and these are easily caught because we can compare them to many other manuscripts. So Bart Ehrman's famous quote, there are more variants in the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. It's a trick. It, it rattles Christians when they hear it, but the number of variants implies we have a lot of manuscripts. That's all it implies. We have more than 5,500 Greek manuscripts that have been discovered, and that's just in Greek. If we count manuscripts in other languages, it's tens of thousands. Most of our manuscripts date to the Middle Ages, but some of them extend back to the 2nd and 3rd centuries, and we have full copies of the Bible in Greek from the 4th century. Now, let's compare these to some other ancient writings of that time. Tacitus was a Roman historian of the 1st century. Today, we have three manuscripts of his writings, and the earliest dates to the 9th century. Josephus is a Jewish historian from the 1st century. We have about 50 manuscripts from Josephus, but all of them date to the 10th century or later. And then there are several ways to look up this information. You, you can find like all these charts with like ancient writing and the number of manuscripts and all these comparisons. But the basic point is that we have thousands more New Testament manuscripts compared to any other ancient writing. And also we have the earliest copies compared to ancient writings. And so Christians have a lot of data to work with. So it's not the total number of textual variants that's important. It's the significant variants that are important. And these make up only about 1% of the variants. And most of the time, scholars can determine the original reading with a pretty high reliability. This process requires a lot of time and study, but here's the basic idea. I mentioned Luke 2.33 earlier, where some manuscripts say Jesus' father and mother marveled at what, we, what was being said about him. Now, other manuscripts replace father with Joseph. And so textual critics believe father is the original because it is what they call the harder reading. And this is based on the theory that scribes were more likely to clarify or remove difficulties when they were copying the text. And so since the Bible says Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, the word father poses some difficulty. And so a scribe is more likely to change it to Joseph, helping the reader preserve the idea of Jesus being born of a virgin. It's a lot less likely that the original said Joseph and a scribe changed it to father. Does that make sense? So father being the harder reading is preferred by textual critics, and they believe that is, is the original. So by examining the significant variants, scholars agree on a majority of them, and only a few are left unsolved, and, and meaning that both variants, uh, you know, the case can be made that, that both of the variants could, could be the original. A great resource on all of this information is The Heresy of Orthodoxy. I've mentioned this book several times as we've been talking about the Bible, but in the last section of the book, I think they make a really brilliant argument. And so Bart Ehrman, in his book, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, he argues that scribes were changing the original because they had these theological biases. However, if we know the original, then this is not really, it's no longer corrupted if we know what the original said. And so, you know, that's, that's what's going on in that book. Bart Ehrman's saying, here's the original, and here's what the scribe changed it to, and look how these scribes are, are theologically driven to change the text, okay? But in another book, Misquoting Jesus, Ehrman says, this is a quote, what good is it to say that the autographs, the, the autographs is the textual critic term for the original uh, writing, 
So what good is it to say that the originals were inspired? We don't have the originals. We have only error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them. Uh, basically, in misquoting Jesus, Ehrman concludes that we just can't know what, what the original writings were. Now, in one book, Ehrman says, this is the original writing, and look how the scribes are changing it. In another book, he says, we can't know what the original writings were. So you see how he, he, he can't have it both ways. <laughs> so either you can't know what the original writing said, or you know what it says, and therefore you can use that to, to show how the scribes are changing it, but you can't have both. And so, again, this is how the skeptical mind thinks. It's just, I'm going to be skeptical no matter what. How can I look at the data and be skeptical? And, and it, there, there's like differing standards in each of these books. And so the heresy of orthodoxy spends, you know, roughly half a chapter kind of going through this argument and, and laying it out in more detail. But I really, uh, I thought that was very powerful. So can we know what the original New Testament authors wrote? I've heard a lot of experts in New Testament textual criticism explain it this way. They say, with all the manuscripts that we have, it's basically like putting together a 1,000-piece puzzle with like 1,010 pieces. We have a little bit of excess material. And, and so, you know, some examples of this would be the three additional sort of uh, pieces of information that I talked about earlier, the longer ending of Mark, the woman caught in adultery, and then the extra little piece of that verse in 1 John 5, 7. So we have some extra stuff that was added over time, but it's a matter of just sort of weeding out the the uh, changes and and getting down to the original text. Now, this is a far different problem from other ancient writings, like like Tacitus, for instance. You only have three manuscripts and, and pieces of writing, and so you're trying to, to piece together the puzzle and wondering if you have missed any information. And so it's far different when you have 5,500 manuscripts and you're trying to figure out what was the original. Now, I don't agree with Bart Ehrman on a whole lot, but this is a powerful quote from one of the world's leading skeptics of the New Testament. I first heard this quote from Daniel Wallace. He's a Christian New Testament scholar. So basically, Daniel Wallace and Bart Ehrman are experts in the same field, but Daniel Wallace is a Christian and Bart Ehrman is a skeptic. So they have these, you know, roughly the same amount of knowledge, the same amount of data in front of them, and they both reach different conclusions. And so they've, they've debated several times. You can find their debates on YouTube, but Daniel Wallace usually includes this quote in the debate. Um, now, this quote is not found in all versions of Misquoting Jesus. That's, that's Bart Ehrman's book. But there is a paperback version with a question-answer section in the back. And also, just so you know, I'm not reading the entire answer here because it is lengthy and wordy in some areas. And I will link the entire quote in the episode notes because I do not want to uh, misquote Bart Ehrman or, or take him out of context. But here's the question. that The questioner says, Bruce Metzger, which is also an expert and, and mentor of Bart Ehrman. So Bruce Metzger, your mentor in textual criticism to whom this book is dedicated, has said that there is nothing in these variants of Scripture that challenges any essential Christian beliefs. Why do you, Bart Ehrman, believe these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy to be in jeopardy based on the scribal errors you discovered in the biblical manuscript. So that is a, a really long question, but basically he's saying, you know, they're saying, Bart, your, your mentor, Bruce Metzger, he says none of the basic Christian doctrines are affected by the, manus by the uh, textual variants. 
And so why do you believe that they're in jeopardy? And, and Bart Ehrman answers this. He says, the position I argue for in misquoting Jesus does not actually stand at odds with Professor Metzger's position that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. That is a big-time admittance by Bart Ehrman, a skeptic of the New Testament. I mean, yes, there are a lot of textual variants. Most of these are insignificant. And of the ones we do have, none of them affect the core doctrines of the Christian faith. So Christians in earlier centuries were not aware of some of these variants. I mean, they just didn't have the manuscript data that we have today, yet their beliefs align with mine. God gives us exactly what we need to know him. And so throughout history, yes, we've, we've discovered more manuscripts, and, but it seems to go in line is with, with when there's doubt about the reliability of the New Testament, you know, we have the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have the discovery of these fourth century manuscripts like Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. And so, you know, God has given Christians the, the data, the evidence that they need to believe. All along the way, I've argued that the Bible was given to us by God through normal historical processes. The Bible was written by man, but inspired by God, copied by man, but preserved by God. Christians have good reasons to trust the Bible's reliability and trust the core tenets that are found within. If the reliability of the New Testament cannot be trusted, then we must be even more skeptical of all the other writings of antiquity, because we have more manuscripts and earlier manuscripts for the New Testament than any other ancient writing. Next week will be the last episode on like, you know, how we got our Bible and that sort of thing. And I will discuss the difference in Bible translations and just kind of give you some pointers on maybe which translation would be best for you. One translation that is very useful for information regarding significant textual variants is the NET Bible or the New English Translation. So it contains thousands of notes from the translators, and they're describing the reasons they make certain decisions regarding textual variants. You can read it for free at netbible.org. And when you pull it up, you know, you'll, you'll have the, the text of the Bible on one side and then the notes on the other side. And so it is really cool. You know, when you come across a textual variant, uh, like, like, for instance, if you go to the woman caught in adultery, there'll be a lot of information there on why they believe that it was not part of the original writing. So they, they lay all that out for you. And then if there's, if there's debate on what should be the, the actual wording, they, they discuss you know, their, their rationale for picking the words they choose and that sort of thing. So it's really interesting and, and a good resource if you're interested in more on this topic. Now, for a closing verse, here's a verse for which there are no significant textual variants. In every manuscript we have, it says the same thing. I'm reading from the ESV, but the King James Version has the exact same words. It's John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 